Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, I know I did that wrong, but, oh well, Asia and Bethaniah, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling his, with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I am a Christian. I am a Christian, but also these were the words of a prisoner uh, arrested during the reign of Marcus Aurelius uh, in 177 AD in the city of Vienne. Uh, more, I guess, known in history, the twin city, Lyon. And in 177, there was an infamous um, just persecution of Christians, especially in these cities. And they would be dragged into the amphitheaters and coliseums of the day. And you would often hear uh, just the chant, death to the Christians. And so this one prisoner who was arrested in Vienne in 177, this was his response. I am a Christian. Response to what? Uh, he was being interrogated by his captors, uh, the Roman guards, and rather than tell them his name or where he had been born uh, or whether he was a slave or free, he instead repeatedly insisted that he had no status save to be a follower of Christ. And this baffled his captors, the judges, that he would only keep coming back to this identity. I am a Christian. And so, during this time of, of extended persecution, Peter's letter, when we get into it, it was written much earlier, but there was persecution of Christians going on uh, during that time. And what's consistent, uh, especially for the church, in these periods of persecution is that the church community, the new community of Christ, um, they took delight in what Peter will refer to, and it's there throughout the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, this identity of God's people as exiles, as aliens, as transients. And their boast, excuse me, was that they were belonging to God in Christ. And their greatest security, their identity, their deepest identity was, I am Christ. That's what this prisoner meant by, I am a Christian. How about you? When pressed, what is your deepest identity? Uh, in the pressures of life, when you go to work and you have the demands of your job title on you, uh, when you're at home and maybe your family's facing some pressures and stress, uh, and there's expectations on one another in your roles, perhaps as husband, wife, father, mother, provider, whatever, just on and on, 
under those pressures, uh, what is your deepest identity? When you're in a fight, and we're all broken human beings, sinners, we throw nasty zingers at each other, and when you're on the receiving end of that, what is your deepest identity? Even when you hear something that isn't pleasant or attacking you. And so 1 Peter is indeed a letter written by the Apostle Peter, the same Peter who was first Simon and who was called by Jesus in Galilee and walked and talked with him, witnessed his miracles, was, uh, knew Jesus and was part of his inner three disciples who were that much more closer to Jesus and Jesus even leaned on in his darkest moment as a friend looking to Peter for uh, support. And this Peter, he writes uh, this letter to Christians who are undergoing uh, around maybe in the mid-60s AD, AD, uh, but nevertheless persecution, just like uh, that person who said, I'm a Christian in 177, but around in the mid-60s AD under the persecution of Nero. Um, And so this letter, we're going into it because Peter is addressing Christians who are living pretty much, for all argument's sake, in a world, in a culture that is hostile to Christianity, uh, for sure at worst, and at least definitely not predominantly in line with with Christianity. That's relevant to you and me because um, I think, for sure, at this point in history, at least where we live in Toronto, increasingly, our world, our culture, our society, uh, it, it doesn't feel Christian. In fact, where Christianity in the history of Canada, uh, it definitely had significant sway and influence uh, just in our culture and our society's mores and morals and so forth. Increasingly, uh, it's less and less what we would call Orthodox Christianity. And so, if we're going to be Christ followers at this point in history, at this point in time, uh, we need to know how to live out a Christian faith in a non-Christian environment. Perhaps even at times, a hostile environment towards our Christian faith. And by Christian faith, I mean if you take the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, face value, uh, to, to try to understand it as simply and straightforwardly as possible, then at some point, your Christian faith will rub up against the broader culture out there. Uh, the, the prayer that um, I want to, well, I hope something like this will stir in our hearts as we uh, just go through this message, uh, this, this passage today, And it's this, Lord, help me to navigate the Christian tension. So as a Christ follower living in a non-Christian life, or a world, sorry, excuse me, help me to navigate the Christian tension. This is uniquely a Christian tension between living all out on earth for you and wanting to go home. And if you boil it down, that, that's, that's the life of an exile that we're going to talk about today that Peter is addressing. 
That, put aside religion and spirituality. If, if you are exiled, just as, uh, you know, from some country or whatnot, there's a longing for home, your, your motherland, your mother culture, and all the people and friends back there. But you're facing the reality as well. Okay, but I'm here, and I have to make a life for myself here and do well with my situation here. And that, for sure, is the reality in the most, from an eternal perspective, the most real sense. We're called to live out with all our heart. If there are people with a zest for life on earth, it should be Christians. Because we know the love of God. We know the joy and the healing of God. All His blessings and grace. And we know how history has been just right, written in, in, from His perspective and where it's all going. And so all the more, as Christians, we should be the ones who are living all out most passionately while on this earth and specifically for Christ, not for our own ambitions and so forth, but nevertheless, the sense of God, I want to be able to stand before you on that final day and have clear conscience that I lived the full life in Christ that you called me to, whatever path that is, whatever way you've called me to live this life while I'm here on earth for you. And, but as, as Paul uh, wrote so just poignantly, I want to go home and be with Christ, but I stay here because it's better for you. And so, I mean, Paul, he's definitely someone who can't be accused of living his life apathetically. He lived his life all out for Christ while he was on earth. But with this tension, I just want to go home. I just want to be with Christ. So what I want to ask, and I think Peter, just straight off the bat in this letter, what he is addressing um, is to answer the question, what tensions are especially a part of the Christ-following life while on earth? What tensions are especially a part of the Christ-following life while you're here on earth? So, Christian, if you're a Christian today, um, I, I hope you can relate to this. I hope you'll, as we're going through this, you'll be like, that's right. That, that's why this Christian life feels so hard at times. Because I'm, I'm caught in this tension between two things. And so the first is... I'm on the way from my old self in me to my new self in Christ. And that's a tension every day. If you're a serious follower of Christ, the Spirit will bring that to the fore each and every day. Something to continue to mature into greater Christ-likeness. Now where do we see that? I think we see it in the fact that Peter writes this not anonymously, but he writes it identifying himself. This is from Peter. And he uses the name that Jesus gave him. And so by this time, probably in his um, 50s, maybe uh, you know, 40s, 50s, maybe 60s at this point, in terms of age, he's just fully embracing now his new identity in Christ. If you know the story of Peter, you'll know that when Jesus 
met him and called him. He was first Simon, and he was really rough around the edges. This Peter, uh, when Jesus was calling him, first just doubted Jesus' instructions. Who is this guy telling me how to fish and telling me I've been here all night and, and there was an arrogance, a pride? That was Simon. This Simon, who became Peter, who vied and jockeyed to be the greatest, to have status amongst the twelve. The same Simon who would become Peter, that Jesus, I don't know if you want this on your Christian resume or not, but, but being the one, how many people in history can say, Jesus actually looked at me and said, get behind me, Satan. And this is, this is Simon who became Peter. This is the same Peter who was Simon who, as mentioned already, on the one hand, wow, what status, what privilege maybe to be considered one of Jesus' inner three, but then failing Jesus in his probably second darkest moment in life next to crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross the night before in the garden? Jesus looked to Peter to support him, to be an emotional rock for him and a spiritual rock, a praying rock, but Peter fell asleep. The same Peter who used to be Simon when Jesus was being arrested that same evening just moments later and his way and and his incomplete understanding of Jesus' way of salvation, redemption, and God's plan, he misunderstood it, so instead he pulled out a sword and tried to bring about God's justice and his plan through the sword, and Jesus rebuking him even there. And of course, we, we can't forget the same Simon who became Peter who denied Jesus three times. I hope you're getting it. Getting the point here, anyone who would have read this letter, they they wouldn't be able to just erase who Peter used to be. And yet, so boldly, so clearly, so confidently, addressing the church, addressing these fellow Christ followers as who he is now in Christ. And over the decades, I'm certain that he had matured. He had grown into greater Christ-likeness. So much so that, let's just give you little previews of what we're looking forward to. Next week's passage, according, Peter writes, according to his great mercy. Peter could sincerely speak of understanding God's great mercy in Christ. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter says, few verses later, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And so Peter's pastor's heart is coming out, just as he's been so mercifully, compassionately pastored by Jesus himself, Peter calling himself a a fellow elder, a fellow pastor, not just an apostle, a, a, a leader and establisher of first church, but also a pastor. And and hear his compassionate words here. 
if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, and he gives them understanding of those trials so that tested, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. In chapter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. He's come a long way. What he would have been known as before is the sword-wielding zealot. But now a completely different approach to the non-Christian culture out there. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter was looking forward and believing in that final return of Christ. That there will be that one final uh, judgment day. Sort of continuing that line of thought, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And he'll go on to even speak about the institution of marriage and family and how we're meant to uh, just follow Christ in those um, spheres. For this to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And so Peter, the dynamic that's going on is overflowing God's grace to him in Christ. He's been once and for all just transformed and he continues to grow and mature into this dynamic that his life is animated and, and empowered by the Spirit making God's grace to him real. And so he can say, towards the end of the letter, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. This isn't academic for Peter. This isn't theory for Peter. He knew what it meant to be beautifully humbled. He knew... That, that sweet spot in life. It's a great place, a good place to be humbled by God's grace. And so he had learned a humility. So I want to ask you, um, just as a pastoral application question, what, what are you tempted to excuse specifically uh, as your hardwiring, your genetics maybe even? I just can't help but be this way. This is me. Okay? All the more, when, when we feel defensive that way, this is where we perhaps need to be humbled and, and to open up our hearts to let God and His grace and Christ and the Spirit come in and say, no, you can continue to grow and mature into Christ-likeness even beyond what you are tempted to excuse as your hard wiring. That you can be changed. If Simon could be redeemed and become Peter and really firmly grow into that identity, then, then all of us can grow into our new selves in Christ as well. And so if, if through the day you, you feel that tension, man, I... See, grace, grace makes it safe for you to be able to confess, I know I'm broken or sinful or falling short of God and His ways for me. 
grace should make it safe for you to say, this is how I'm inadequate. Because grace doesn't leave you there. God's grace in Christ then says, but this is who Christ has died on the cross for your place to become. And there should be that tension every day. Lord, help me to keep growing today. Help me. Show show me what habit to build. Show me when to catch my tongue. Show me just whatever specific thing it is that I, I need to grow. Show me. If Sometimes we're, we have blind spots, and, and so just kind of another question in terms of growth. What does everyone else around you see, but you're oblivious to, or worse, in deliberate denial of? Right? Just asking these questions, because the whole point is here, this is one tension of Christianity, that we're meant to keep growing into Christ-likeness. Now in this moment, hope this comes off funny. Spouses, don't you dare think right now, I hope my wife or I hope my husband is listening right now. Right? That, that's the very opposite wrong <laughs> attitude towards this. You're missing the whole point then. Let's first look into the mirror for yourself. And friends, don't you dare think first, I hope he, she is listening right now. Look into the mirror of God's word with the light of the Holy Spirit illuminating, illuminating what you need to see first. Well, next, um, I'm on the way from a temporary home to my eternal home. Right off the bat. Peter, through his years, he became a master writer as well. Probably just sitting under Jesus. It seems as, as we read the Gospels, Jesus was a master of words and so efficient with his words. And, and Peter... I might say even more than Paul, just a little bit more understandable at times. <laughs> um, and Peter, in just these first two verses, packing in deep theology. And he wants us to see that we're on the way from a temporary home to my eternal home. Now in Canada, we should be able to appreciate this. We have friends and family and fellow citizens who have just um, suffered terrible damage because of Fiona. And I remember watching one interview this past week, um, one person on PEI just crying and through tears, a woman saying, I wish someone could have warned us. I wish we could have been prepared. And here because her literal, physical, earthly home uh, just obliterated by the waves. We think of refugees. What's most uh, recent is just the, the wave of Ukrainian refugees who've lost their home, feeling displaced. And so we're to get this, what, what I guess I want you to just connect with right now is this whole notion of just imagine your earthly home is, is gone one day. But what Paul is going to get at is that actually that's how Christians should be thinking each and every day. That this home that I have, my address, the brick and mortar, the condo, the rental, the, wherever it is that you're living, this is all temporary. Even if you've paid off your mortgage, I mean, praise God, that's an amazing feat in and of itself that should be you know, just uh, celebrated. 
But even that sense of ownership with being mortgage-free, what needs to be foundational is this still is temporary. It's not my permanent home. Now, where do we get this? Peter introduces himself, Peter the Apostle, to those who are elect exiles. Don't worry, we'll get to elect in a, for the last point. But notice here, he addresses them, exiles of the dispersion. The diaspora, Christians who are just spread out to all these places across the Roman Empire. And he uses the word exiles. Out of all the ways he could have addressed the identity of Christians, because my fellow brothers in Christ, my fellow church, my, to Christians, to Christ followers, whatever. No, he says exiles. Now the literal definition of exile uh, is, is someone who has a prolonged separation from one's country or home. And certainly, literally, sociologically, politically, these people were exiles because under persecution, they were displaced from their actual homes. But Peter, I, want, I hope you'll see with me that I think he, what he means at a deeper level and even a more real level is spiritually that these people are exiles. That earth ultimately is not their home. Now, Peter, being a good Jew, a Jewish Christian, for certain he would understand this because he knows his people's history. And so there's something that's helpful that uh, theologians, uh, one way they frame it is they, they talk about a Jerusalem perspective on life versus an exilic perspective on life. And Peter would have understood that his people at one point, I mean, the height of their glory was for sure Solomon, King Solomon. Because not only was there a throne, but there was a temple, and the glory of the Lord came down. And so Israel was vying to become this beacon of light to the world. And so the center of the world in their heart, in God's eyes, was Zion, Jerusalem. And so it became much more of a perspective of let us build from in to out. And it's all about our culture, our identity, our honor, and so forth. But we know that God's people, they broke covenant and they faced the consequences that God laid out a long time ago through Moses. And in short, they were exiled. Half of them were exiled uh, to Assyria uh, in the... uh, 700s or so BC, and uh, Judah was exiled to Babylon. And especially while God's people were exiled in Babylon, God gives this peculiar message through Jeremiah saying, Hey, you're not going to be going back to your homeland for a long time. Instead, you can look it up in Jeremiah 29. I want you to firmly establish your life in exile. I want you to uh, get married, even to foreigners there, to do well, to cultivate your businesses and economy and so forth, and just establish your life there for the welfare of that nation, for the good of that nation. And so this is what we would call an exilic perspective. How do, we do, how do we follow God in exile? 
And those were the instructions that uh, God gave his people through Jeremiah. And so we see even later people like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego becoming number two, Daniel at least, number two in the government under these kings. Now what's interesting, just straight off the bat, with Daniel just had this aha moment, even as influential as he became, yes, that nation and King Nebuchadnezzar would have these moments of acknowledging God, the true God, and repenting, but it's not that Babylon became Israel. It's not that Babylon became a mosaic society living with the laws of Moses, even as high as Daniel got. And even at key points, Daniel in time and history, Daniel being persecuted and fellow Jews being persecuted. But the point is, we come back to Peter now, and again, he brings up this theme in chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, people just traveling through, people who are longing for their homeland. They've been displaced and for a long period. Now, look at what Peter says here. He paints it in a spiritual context. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. See, he's saying, you guys aren't just socio-political exiles. More importantly, you have to see and understand your life as a Christ follower that you're in spiritual exile. You long for the goodness of God, the purity of God, the kindness of God, just doing life under God and His perfect reign with all His morals and His ways and doing relationship and, and building homes, etc., as He meant it in His goodness. And yet you live in a culture and a world that is so diametrically opposite. So this is a spiritual thing. Paul picks up on this in his letter to the Philippians. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our true homeland is the hope of the new creation as we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. In Hebrews, Hebrews uh, makes it so clear. Speaking of all the saints of old, even Old Testament saints, these died all in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Again, this is from a spiritual perspective. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They're longing for their true home. If they have been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, meaning Hebrews is making it absolutely clear here, it's not about trying to get back to whatever country, socio-political country. So if they had been speaking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so that's why the third part of our, to go back to last week's sermon, if you're here, the third part of our vision as a church is God's new city. 
to long for that new city with the saints of old. And so Hebrews 13 brings it full circle and says, for we have no lasting city here on earth, but we seek the city that is to come. And so a part of what we're going to do through the year, what you can look forward to is we're going to look back on um, Israelites who were in exile, like Jeremiah and Daniel as well, we'll weave it into the series and to learn from their example as well and to take what we need to as exile still today. Now that's a big concept. That's a big identity to really wrap your heart and mind around because you might be a proud Canadian. That, that's a good thing. Um, you might be really firmly established and just with your life here in Toronto. The, jo- the, 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 the gospel, how it challenges us is, no, there's, there's an identity that is more important than your passport. So much so to the point, what Christians, as we progress in maturity, what we understand is, man, I, I'm, in, I'm in exile, so I've got to figure out how to follow Jesus as an exile. And we're going to take our cues from Jeremiah and Daniel as we work through this series. Now, I love how Rick Warren just brings it home so beautifully. See, what a Christian really understands then is at death, you won't leave home. You'll go home. Are those your words? Are those, can you say yes? He's, he's, he's articulating what I believe and feel as well. I hope you can. I hope you, your, your answer is, at least I want that. I know that. I want to believe that. I want that. But finally then, the way this is going to all be possible is that we understand the tension between the fact that I'm on the way from living by works to being saved by sheer grace. That's another tension that Christians, we, we need to navigate every day. That's, that's one lens to put on, if you will, every day. How am I going to live all out on earth, meaning keep producing as many good works as I can from working hard at, at my profession and trying to be the best that I can be there without compromising my marriage, my family, and so working hard at my home life, working hard at being a Christ follower and and executing and applying all my Christian beliefs in those areas of work and at home. Because we're meant to work hard, especially Christ followers, to work hard. To work hard at at growing into more Christ-likeness. But by sheer grace. See, the, 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 the very easy slippery slope is that as we work hard, we work hard, we work hard, we, we, we try to get back to God to try to find some sense of salvation and wholeness for ourselves from our own hard work. 
And that's not your fault. That's, that's because that's how God originally created the world. That's what's hardwired into us. Like Adam and Eve, if we just obey God's commands, then it should all go well. But that system is broken because Adam and Eve sinned, and now that system fails us. And yet, there's this man, Jesus. Today's call to worship passage, something I noticed for the first time as we were um, reading the call to worship scripture. And David says, notice David in Psalm 39, he's praying to God, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner. I'm in exile. This is King David. King. He's king of Israel. If anyone should feel rooted and established and as a firm citizen on earth, it's King David. But notice what he says. I am a sojourner in exile with you. He's saying that the Lord himself is a sojourner. The only way, or or at least the clearest way that makes sense is to think of Jesus. That Jesus himself found himself as an exile from his homeland. Found himself a sojourner on earth so that we could eventually be brought home. So that by His grace, as we produce all these good works, as a response to God's lavish love for us, by sheer grace. Now, where do we see this? Paul, or sorry, Peter. I appreciate his writing, his letter, because he just gets to the point. And so we see, to those who are elect exiles, We've got to pay attention to that. So what are the elect? Who are the elect? Part of the answer is to those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. If you just put aside whatever theological traditions, Calvinism, Arminianism, whatever, put all that aside. If you just read the Bible, just, you know, surface value, there are these people that God chooses, that He calls to Himself the elect. You can't deny that. And it's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, functionally, what that means is when heaven comes, when the new creation is there, and the, the, the church is gathered, who will be there are the elect. And who are the elect? They'll just end up being all true believers through time. All true believers. Just just think of it that way. And for you and me, I don't think it benefits us so much to try to guess, is he elect? Is she elect? (laughs) And Scripture doesn't speak of the elect in that way, so neither should we approach the elect that way. But, nevertheless, for those who are on that path of discipleship, it can certainly become for the individual and their relationship with God something that is so comforting, so reassuring that God is for me. Because with God's elect, what is certain is that 
the sacrifice Jesus made is irrevocable. The grace that God shows through Jesus is irrevocable. And those who have placed faith in Jesus, that's meant to be an assurance that I am God's and that God will bring me home. Now, to just help you understand this a little bit more, beginning with God's people Israel, if you think of this blue circle as, as on the surface, just all of God's people, his old covenant of God people, you fast forward to Paul and he says, not all Jews are true Jews. Only those who really have been circumcised of the heart. There had to be a genuine faith. But nevertheless, think of this circle of all those who might call themselves and identify as Israel or Jewish. And they enter into that circle of covenant, but they're not necessarily the elect. Now certainly, um, there will be the elect who are the Jews. Now fast forward, the new covenant people of God, the church. Baptism and communion are, are signs of being covenant people. And so it's important if you consider yourself a Christ follower that you get baptized because that's an outward physical sign that you're part of this new covenant circle. But sadly, most of us here can speak of people who have been baptized, but they've left the faith. Now, I still believe that God's grace can potentially be there for them so that as they persevere, as they repent and turn back, what we'll, have, what we'll see when we get to heaven, that there will be Israelites from thousands of years ago who had placed faith in God truly and looking forward to the hope in the scriptures of this Messiah who would become their atonement. And they'll be the elect. And there'll be those true believers in the church who persevered to the very end. And so the whole point is that you and I are meant to persevere. The Hebrew speaks of this. Persevere in your faith so that you might be found on that final day uh, before God. And so Peter here, he uses this very explicit word to the elect exiles, those who have placed faith in Christ and his encouragement, his exhortation is don't give up. By God's grace, by God's grace, not by your own works, but by God's grace and your belovedness and that identity, keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. Now, the tension then, never forget, what's hardwired in every human soul is to live and find or fail to find your worth in your performance. That's going to creep up in your heart every single day until God takes you home and glorifies you and once and for all uh, just brings that to full redemption through Jesus. And the temptation is to rely on your own work. Faith then is utterly trusting and depending on Jesus for his singular, perfect, substitutionary work as the only acceptable work for, before God. And, and as you rest in that, it should, it must translate to, therefore, I want to give my best. For, if God has loved me this much, I want to keep loving him back. And that's why Peter, he says, 
to all the elect, exiles, and now he describes their life in the sanctification of the Spirit. Peter is giving the big picture summary of what it means to follow Christ. First, an ongoing maturation and sanctification, repenting of sins and failures and idols as the Spirit reveals those things, and then coming back again again and again in faith. To say, Lord, I need Your grace endlessly. Lord, I need You. Every hour, I need You. That you're not only saved by grace, but that you continue to be matured by grace. Grace meaning in the safety of God's unconditional love for you, and so therefore you're okay to confront what needs to be confronted and work on those things, and grace to pick you up. And so that's why Peter continues, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. The elect know and they glory in the fact that that's why they, 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 they get up quickly. Sure, you might sin, you might fall, you might stumble, but you get up quickly because your conscience is sprinkled over and over again by Jesus' atoning blood. And you're reminded again and again how loved you are in Christ. This needs to inform our identity as men, women, children, husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, uh, as an employee at work. That needs to be your identity. And so I love how Paul, or Peter, sorry, concludes his intro here. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. For Peter too, it's all about God's grace. So first, Christian. Christian friend. How honestly and genuinely can you say, I get grace. I'm I'm applying grace in my day-to-day lives and relationships. I'm intentionally trying to wrestle with how this plays out in my life, in every area of life. And Peter's pastoral heart is that you would just, I mean, the word here multiplied, it it just means endless. Endless. To be flooded by an endless supply of grace and peace. And so, um, yeah, if it's sincerely on your heart and, and just stirring there, would you join me as we close this sermon? Uh, just with this prayer. Lord, help me navigate the Christian tension between living all out on earth for you and wanting to go home.